Listener Production. A warning. This episode touches on topics involving violence against women and sexual assault. So please listen with care. The number for 1800 Respect is 1800 737732. And the number for Lifeline is 131114. Welcome to Crime Insiders Forensics. For those joining us for the first time, my name's Catherine Fox. I'm a former GP, crime author and screenwriter. I'm enthralled by forensics and have spent thousands of hours researching for books and screenplays. So, I thought, why not turn my research into a podcast? Every week, you'll be joining me in discovering how forensic science is helping solve high-profile crimes in Australia and around the world. This week, how barely visible fibres on the bottom of a shoe led to the conviction of a killer. The source question is not the critical one. It's more the activity question. How and when these fibres could be transferred? Distinguished Professor Claude Roux is a pivotal figure in Australian forensic science. He's the director of the UTS Centre for Forensic Science and president of the International Association of Forensic Sciences. In his early days at UTS, Claude was involved in a research project about the significance of fibres and their transfer. It's impossible for a criminal to avoid the transfer of all the different possible traces. This research is called into action after the homicide of 21-year-old student Frances Tizzoni in 1995. Her body's found in bushland by a busy northern Sydney parkway. Police arrive and establish a crime scene. An eagle-eyed crime scene investigator makes a crucial discovery of trace evidence, but there are questions still unanswered. The first thing I'd like to say... It's a great example of the critical aspect of crime scene work because the crime scene investigators in this case were absolutely crucial because if they had not found what you mean as by evidence, and I would prefer to use the term trace, that would have been lost right away. So it's just a good example that crime scene work is absolutely essential. We could do a perfect work in the laboratory, we could have the best science in the laboratory, but if we miss the first step, essentially everything may become irrelevant. Francis's body, when found, was completely clothed, including shoes. What sort of shoes was she wearing? So she was wearing a lipstick booth, so kind of walking shoes with a kind of a quite coarse uh, rubber sole. With tread marks in the sole? Yes, the typical pattern that you have in kind of walking shoes. What was the significance of those shoes that she was wearing? So the significance of these shoes were that some fibres, some textile fibres, were apparent on both shoe soles. And these fibres had been noticed right away from the crime scene investigators. So they were very visible to the naked eye. Um, If you look for them. So, yes, uh, they are visible, but you have to think about them and you have to look for them. And and to be honest, these sort of traces may be missed 
So again, it's the crucial part of the crime scene work that essentially people try to find these traces, and in that case, fibres. Can you give us a definition of what a fibre actually is? In the forensic world, what we call fibres, it's an item that is very small in size, so usually we need to have a microscope to have a good look at it. But something very thin, very narrow, but very long. So there is a very small diameter compared to the length. A typical example of fibres, which is an animal fibre, is simply a hair. Also, in our world, we quite often focus on textile fibres. And textile fibres are the fundamental element that is used in the textile manufacture. So you put fibres together to have a thread or a yarn, and then these threads are put together to make a fabric. So essentially, when you pull apart your piece of textile to the extreme, you are just left with the fibres. And they are important to us because they transfer easily, they persist for some time, And we use fabric for a lot of things in our everyday world. So when they find the fibres at the scene on the deceased person, I imagine if they remove the shoes, then fibres can drop off, they can be wiped off, they can just be displaced. So what happens at that scene? So normally at a scene like that, the investigator would take proper photos, not only of of the scene and the victims and everything, but if the shoes are very relevant, so they take photos of the shoes and of the soles and then close-up photos of the fibres, so all very well documented. In that case, the shoes were packaged very carefully and everything was documented that people had to be careful that there were fibres on the shoe soles. In some cases, investigators may decide to collect the fibres separately and secure the fibres separately using tweezers and, and um, collecting these fibres in, you know, in folded sheets of paper, put in Ziploc bags, or th- there are different ways to do that. Another way that people can do, and usually that's done as the last step, is to use sticky tape. So essentially to tape a surface to make sure that uh, we collect everything that is on that surface. Including dirt and other things Including as well. Including dirt, Plant yeah, which matter. is, exactly, which again is very important because, you know, we shouldn't focus on only one trace type. So, you know, the famous forensic scientist Edmond Locard was very clear that it's impossible for a criminal to avoid the transfer of all the different possible traces. So if a criminal tries maybe to wear gloves to avoid leaving finger marks, actually then the criminal may leave glove marks. So in this case, when the evidence was collected, what was significant about the fibres and and why are fibres significant? Yeah, so, okay, it's a very interesting question. Um, So why fibres are significant? So I I guess, um, yeah, there is a very easy answer. You said that the victim was clothed. Thankfully, we're not naked here, so we all have clothes. So uh, as you know, clothes are made of fabric, and the fundamental unit of a, of a piece of fabric are actually fibres. So we've got textile fibres. And these fibres are easily transferred for most fabrics through contacts 
different types of contacts. For example, when I'm finished with this interview, you can have a look at the seat I'm on now, and you'll very likely find fibers from my pants, my jacket, that have been transferred onto that seat. Just as you would find maybe hair or skin cells or anything exactly. else. Right? So fibers are a type of traces that are easily transferred, persist for some time, and that's an important point for in, in that case. Persist for some time, but not indefinitely. And another thing, which again, very relevant to that case, fibers can be quite diverse. There are different types of fabric, so different types of what we call generic classes for the fibers. So this type of fibers, so say wool, cotton, etc. Even if it's only a small number of these sort of fibers, another thing that is added to it is the color. The dye. The dye. So through the analysis of the color and the type of fiber, we can already distinguish a lot of the fibers that you may find in the population. And a lot of research has found that uh, even if you pick up a very, very common piece of, of, of garment, so you go to a very, you know, a general store. Mass-produced. Mass-produced garment, and you use that as a reference. And then you collect fibers you find, for argument's sake, on cinema seats. And why cinema seats? Because everyone goes to the movie, you've got a good cross-section of the You're population. For a while. And it's almost never clean, <laughs> and <laughs> so on. So you have, a, you have a very good population of fibres. And you try to see whether you can find the same fibres, indistinguishable fibres, from the seat compared to that garment that has been sold, I don't know how many thousand times. You realise that this is extremely rare. So finding a fiber match, like we loosely said, by pure chance is uncommon. So how on earth do you go about analysing that fiber to have anything in the world to compare it to? In that case, it was very clear that we had a very good crime scene work. So as you mentioned, it was detected at the scene, it was secured. So it has to be recognized, then collected. And then the first step of the analysis is essentially good microscopy work looking you know, through a normal optical microscope with different types of magnification. And that already gives a first identification of pre-identification of the type of fiber. For example, cotton, very, very easy to identify under the microscope. Wool, the same thing with a bit of experience, very easy to identify. Main-made fibers can be a bit tricky sometimes to identify using a microscope, but a good forensic examiner expert in fibers would be able to go for a, a long way with a microscope. But after that, especially for man-made fibers, we've got instrumental chemical analysis that can be done. So essentially, we can analyze then the fibers further using an instrument that essentially gives a chemical signature of the fiber and will tell you, yes, this is nylon, this is polypropylene. Uh, and even more than that, can say... Um, it's not only nylon, but it can say it's a specific type of nylon. So or can nylon it be a six, combination? Six, six. Ah, or, okay, so they're yeah, categorized. Yeah, or, or, or even sometimes there are some bicomponent fibres and you can even analyse both sides of the bicomponent fibres. What do you mean by that? So it's uh, when you have two different polymers that are put together within a fibre. So a combination fabric, if you had something like bamboo and elastane or yeah, cotton and... And Usually that would, be, or... that would be two different types of fibres that would be put together. Do the fibres that shed, are they separate 
or do you get the shedding of the combination of fibres? Ah, very good question. So it's a it's a it's a typical a typical defence lawyer question, and I say that because actually that was a very relevant question in that case. The short answer is not necessarily. When you have a blended fabric, and you have some proportion of two types of fibres within the fabric. So say, for example, 60% polyester, 40% cotton. When there is a contact and there is a fibre transfer, it doesn't mean that you necessarily have the same proportions in the fibres after recovery. So you won't get a perfect replication as a that, sample. That won't happen. That won't happen for a variety of reasons. We call that that phenomenon differential shedding. Because the shedding is different depending on the type of fibers, so um, it's due to the affinity, if you want, of the of the fibers and the recipient surface and all the mechanics of of the fiber transfer and uh, fragmentation, and whether the fibers have scales or not, so they will more easily transfer and so on. So if you've got a fiber that is very smooth, synthetic, generally it doesn't transfer as easily as a cotton fiber that would tend to fragment through a contact. So that's one thing. The other thing as well is the proportions we are talking about are based on different things. So in a garment, normally the proportions, it's not a proportion of fibers. So it's not that you've got 60% of your fibers in your garment will be polyester and 40% cotton. It's a percentage based on the weight. So while when we do the analysis of the fibers, we are based on the fibers, we are not based on the weight. So there is a density aspect that How on is earth can you then make a match? <laughs> My brain's just go, there are so many variables and, and how is it possible to then, what are the chances of matching fibers? Now, in this particular case, there is another aspect. So it's not all about the source, but it's also about the activity. So it's also about trying to use fibers to reconstruct what happened. So from the fibers, from the number of fibers you find, where you find them, and if you know a bit the context of the case, so you can go backwards from the fibers to what could have happened or what is likely to have happened or to be more accurate, what proposition you can support using your fibers. How long before Frances was found could those of fibres been on? She's in bushland. Presumably if she walked into the bushland, what are the chances that fibres would have stayed on the shoes? So does location of where they are and if they're inside tread or on outside, does that matter as to where on the shoe the fibres were found? Yes, uh, that matters. And, and uh, the number of them matters as well. And... Your question is absolutely spot on. That was the critical aspect in that case. So maybe I should tell you about how many fibers and what we found in that case so we can maybe dig in a bit further. This is um, so intriguing that a simple thing yes. like a fiber, and yet you said so many challenges face you, and yet they were critical in the conviction in this case. Yes. So what, what happened is there were a number of fibers found on both shoe soles. There were 26 black polyester and five blue polypropylene and five grey polypropylene fibres that were recovered from the right shoe, and four grey polypropylene, seven blue polypropylene, and 24 black polyester from the left. 
So here the first assumption was essentially to find where these fibers could come from and have some good critical thinking. So the first question would be, what kind of fabric could leave fibers on the shoe sole? Very quickly you realize the most logical item is a carpet. So the first thing was investigative work to go around all the places where the victim had been the few days before her disappearance and see whether they could find carpets that would be similar to these fibers. So the police went to the university, university library, uh, home, and so on, and they found no similar fibers in her environment. Now, because of the police work, a person of interest was identified, her ex-boyfriend. And this person of interest owned a 1991 Honda CRX, and um, there were carpets in this vehicle. So some samples from that carpet were taken and analyzed, and they applied the same analytical scheme to the fibers that were found on the shoe sole. And what they found uh, were that they couldn't discriminate the fibers from the car carpet to the fibers from found on the shoe soles. So essentially the car carpet was made of uh, 60% gray polypropylene, 15% blue polypropylene, and 25% black polyester. So you can see we have again these black polyester, blue polypropylene, and gray polypropylene. And this particular carpet was manufactured in Japan and was only used in 1990 and 1991 Honda CRX vehicles. And 296 of these vehicles had been sold in Australia. Um, that affidavits were obtained from the owners of 291 of these cars each claiming not to have been in the area where the disease was found from the 29th of March to the 2nd of April, 1995. So all of those owners signed affidavits saying, yeah. I'm not there, I wasn't there. Yes, only five vehicles were unaccounted for, one of which was the suspect's vehicle. So in interestingly, in this case, the defence had a, an expert um, who came and uh, put a question mark around exactly this question of differential shedding. Because if you've been, you know, you've paid attention to what I was saying, the proportions you have of the three different types of fibers between the number of fibers on the shoe soles and what was in the carpet, they do not match. So that was used by an expert from the defense saying, uh, these fibers cannot come from that carpet because the proportions are not the same. And as a forensic scientist, you know that you have to account for this phenomenon of differential shedding. How do you? So what we did in that case, one of the first things we, we did was to do experimental work, experimental research, essentially to test whether this differential shedding aspect was occurring with that carpet. So we use the machine called an abrasion tester, which is a machine used in the textile industry where we can make frictions between two so you you rub know, it. two fabrics. So we rub it. And we did that a lot of times, you know, say 10 times. And we realized that the proportions between each experiment were highly variable. 
So in one case, we may have the gray polypropylene as the most common type of fiber transferred. Another case, that would be the black polyester. So you didn't confirm the defendant's scientists saying there's no way this can come from the carpet. What you did was reaffirm that it could have come from that carpet. Yeah, what what yeah, what we did essentially that argument saying that the proportions are different, hence it cannot come from that carpet, what we showed is it's impossible to make an inference based on these proportions because Every transfer experiment may lead to different types of proportions. So that removed some of the doubt about the origin so of the fibres. Yes, exactly. That, um, that removed doubt in relation to the various proportions of fibres being transferred. You know, that it, it's an argument that we can rule out. So, so that was very important because quite often in forensic science, we are criticised that we um, a lot of people you know, base their conclusions or findings or interpretation on thin air, don't have empirical data. And actually, we got this empirical data for that aspect, so for that particular question. Was that during the trial? Yes, that's correct. Um, What's interesting here is that the source question, finding matching fibres in that case, support the proposition that it comes from that carpet as opposed to any other source, was not an issue in court once we had ruled out, you know, this issue of differential shedding. So if the defence is accepting that those fibres did come from his car, presumably they're using the defence that, well, of course she'd been in his car, so you wouldn't be surprised if she'd left fingerprints in his car or his clothing or his car seat was on her clothing as well, fibres from that. So presumably they would then try and argue that those fibres had been on those shoes for a while. Exactly. The said he hadn't seen her for at least six weeks or something like that. Yes, exactly. You are perfectly spot on. In, in cases like that, you know, the source question is not the critical one. It's more the activity question. It's more, you know, how and when especially these fibres could be transferred. So, so that was a very important, uh, very important question. And that was actually the critical question in court because you are, it's a perfect, perfectly valid argument. You know, she was in a relationship with the defendant. So, of course, she has left traces of herself or her garments and, and so on uh, and in the versa. environment and vice versa. The issue is the timing. So, the whole question became, is it possible for fibres to first be transferred from a car carpet to shoe soles when someone sits in a car? And then the next question was, for how long these fibres will remain Remain on the shoes. On the shoes. It was bushland, so presumably if she'd walked across grass or gravel, there could have been abrasions that actually removed the fibres or they were replaced in the tread with dirt or grass or whatever. Exactly. So even if previous research can give us some guidance to interpret a case like that, we wanted to have empirical data specific to that case. It was very interesting because we were just starting the Forensic Science Honours Program 
at UTS. So it was the first cohort of students. Uh, so we could use one student and then a whole class for some of the experiments to essentially recreate, to mimic some of the activity that could happen with someone sitting in a car and then the persistence, you know. So we had offcuts uh, from the shoe manufacturer. So we had a lot of these, just the soles. The soles. So that was wow. very interesting. And uh, we used Velcro to essentially for people to put that on, you know, on their own shoes. shoes. And we recreated some situations and we asked students first to transfer the fibers. And then we asked a whole class of students to, to walk around the lab and to walk around different surfaces and so on using the particular car carpet that, you know, that was um, relevant to that case and see essentially how these fibers would remain. And first, whether they would transfer, whether there would be differences depending on the type of shoe and shoe soles. And even we had the research student in that case who went to Canberra with the AFB and had access to the car to recreate some sitting and, and the car braking and things like that with the actual car to see how, uh, how many fibers would transfer in, in a case like that. Could you then, as a consequence, then have them walk for a period of time to see how long or how much yeah. walking required to actually displace yes. them? Yes. She tried a lot of different experiments there. And what we found first is uh, the number of fibres that were transferred were quite comparable to the number of fibres that were found in that case. So, yes, that it's possible that you can have that transfer. But the more critical questions was really about the time and the persistence. So what we found is that most fibers would be lost within five minutes of walking on most surfaces. And uh, more importantly, after half an hour, in all of our experiments, no fibers were remaining on the shoe soles. That was extremely significant for the case. Especially since Francis was at university at Macquarie Uni that day and then got a train to supposedly meet her ex-boyfriend. So that would give you that time frame that the fibres should have been removed. What then happened with that evidence in the trial? There was a, a, an expert for the defence who came, an expert in engineering, you know, more than forensic science. And, and in his report, he had done a few experiments, but in his report, he had said that fibres could, you know, persist for a long time and, and things like that. While actually our experiments that were proper experiments Clearly, we showed that th that was not possible. Yeah, so these fibers, and especially when it's combined with this notion that fibers are not going to persist for long on shoe soles for someone alive and walking, were absolutely critical in that case. Uh, and that was the only forensic evidence. Everything else in the case was... Circumstantial. Yeah. The case then... The prosecutors have a circumstantial case against the ex-boyfriend because he, of course, denies having seen the victim for six weeks and claimed he was at work. People at work said he'd left work. There was no one to corroborate his version of events. So, again, it's all circumstantial. And they had a possible motive because she'd rejected him and he'd allegedly already tried to solicit someone to kill her. They still need evidence. 
you need motive means opportunity, but you also need to tie that person. So your evidence and your findings were absolutely critical in this case. Yes, absolutely, because uh, essentially what it, what it shows is that the victim did not walk much after sitting in the car. So within half an hour? Looking at our experiments, uh, you know, the, a time frame of half an hour would be kind of a, the, the maximum bracket, the maximum boundary. So essentially we can say there is no substantial time after the, the victim sat in the car. And by substantial time, you know, we really mean minutes and not hours or longer. And given where she was found, there's no way she walked there herself, particularly given that there were neck markings at post-mortem and the cause of death was deemed strangulation. The boyfriend, John Serratore, was convicted. Were there multiple other trials as well? Did he appeal and have things overturned, do you know? Um, the defendant was found guilty but uh, the defence appealed and uh, on a number of legal grounds, including that the prosecution and the original trial had presented two alternatives to the jury. One, that the accused had killed the victim himself or that he had arranged for someone else um, to while using his car. So this appeal was upheld and the conviction set aside. However, as there was evidence on which it would be open to a jury acting reasonably to convict, a new trial was ordered. And then in the, the prosecution appealed the decision of this appeal in the High Court of Australia, and this application was refused and the retrial upheld. So there was a second trial and the accused was found guilty again. And convicted and sent to prison. Yeah, exactly, yes. We're now saying recycle polyester. Yes. Does that make your job more difficult? Um, yeah, what makes it more difficult actually is, is more the microfibers that we've seen coming, uh, especially, and they are made of polyester quite often, because they are very, very, very small, and they they transfer in big numbers, and they are quite ubiquitous. So uh, this is the kind of challenge we have in terms of the detection and, and the collection of fibers. Does it make it more difficult to identify if it's a recycled fiber? Yeah, so, I mean, if you, if, you know, if it's recycled, I mean, obviously, it depends how it's recycled, but if you know if it's kind of melted and then extruded, and um, you know that um, the interesting thing would be that you know there is a bigger var- variety of fibers. So it, to some extent, it it helps us because it means there are a lot a lot of different types of fibers. So when you have fibers that are uh, indistinguishable, so you know when you have a match. Um, Potentially, it has more value because we have more diversity in the fibre population. We've talked about weight of fibres, but if fibres are absorbent and they can absorb fluids, perspiration, a lot of other things, does that give you better trace or worse trace? It's an excellent question. I it, I, I would answer both. It depends on, on the case and it depends on what you, what you observe. So obviously the first thing to realize is, is fibers can be a substrate for other types of traces. So we could have this notion of traces of traces. So for example, we may find some very small particles coming from your environment on the fiber. 
So some people have been interested in, in what we call very small particles. And these are the very small particles you have in an environment due to occupational environment or just pollution or, you know, and typical example would be, you know, things like pollens. Um, so you've got all these sort of particles or someone working with wood or someone working with metal, someone working in, in a hospital with some kind of chemicals. And, you know, so you can imagine you, you may have a lot of very small particles or the types of, of residues attached to the fiber. So we are dealing here with, you know, traces of traces um, without talking about, of course, you know, blood or semen that, you know, could be, um, you know, on fabric and hence on fibers. So more research to come on the subject of fibre analysis and identification. But it is actually exciting that something as tiny as a fibre can be instrumental in solving a crime and leading to a conviction. Yes, no, that's a, the typical example of how traces can speak. And I know it's a cliche and saying, you know, physical evidence is the silent witness and that sort of thing. But I think the case we talked about is very interesting because it showed that it's not all about the source identification. It's not all about the source question. In that case, the critical issue was about the activity and timing is part of that activity, reconstruction. And too often in forensic science, and especially, I guess, part of it is because of DNA, we, we over-focus on the source questions. Sometimes the source is not the critical question because in, in a case like that, when there is a legitimate reason for two people to be close together, it becomes a secondary question. The main question is about how, when, where, and all these sort of other questions that are part of an activity reconstruction. Thank you so much, Claude, for joining us today. And thank you so much for your innovative and on-the-spot, timely research during a trial especially. I think that's incredible. Oh, thank you for having me. Crime Insiders Forensics is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Catherine Fox, and is produced by Ed Gooden. Sound design and imaging is by Link Kelly.